0: The book of Titus, the series is called Living Good. And if you think about that word good for a moment, just reflect on that word. Good. What does it mean? What comes to your mind when we just talk about good? Simple word. Maybe when you think about this, we have different phrases like it's all good. Usually it's not all good, but we say that. How you doing? Oh, it's all good. What does that mean? Or we maybe say something like, the good life, I, I want, I'm looking for the good life, I want to live the good life, and maybe it's uh, around kind of towards the end of your life, people reflect and say things like, I've had a good life, or you might say about someone, she had a good life, or he had a good life. Oftentimes I'm at funerals and these kinds of phrases are said, yeah, they lived a good life. We use the word good, or sometimes we use it kind of more in an adjective uh, sense of describing an identity that we have. A good, fill in the blank, a good mom. What is that? Or a good dad, or a good husband. What would that mean? Or good wife, or a good friend? Maybe you want to be a good friend or you have someone and you would call them a good friend. Sometimes we say it in phrases, be good to one another. Be good to one another, just be good. Maybe your parents told you, be good. We're going somewhere, be good. Okay? Uh, Sometimes it's been common recently, I've seen uh, these kind of just different phrases and bumper stickers and t-shirts, be a good human very broad, just be a good human, or just be a good human, be humble, be kind, spread joy, peace, love. Sometimes we talk about, be a good neighbor. That's a very common phrase. I think really during the pandemic stuff, that really kind of kicked off. I remember uh, seeing on, on, the, on the street, <clears throat> there was a kind of down the, like the freeway, it said, we can beat this together, be a good neighbor. It was graffitied on the side of uh, the street. It's like an interesting way to convey the message. But sometimes we say that, just be a good neighbor. We talk about at our church, we want to be a good neighbor to the teachers around us. So there's this idea of good, being good. and gets at a desire that we have to live a good life, to do good with our life. What if we could say, go back through all those different areas, and you could say about friendship and marriage and parenting and, and all those different things. What if we could say, yes, it is good. I have lived a good life. What if you could say, no, no asterisks, no, no kind of uh, hypocrisy, but you could say, I am a good father. I am a good wife. I am a good friend. If we could say those things, if we could say, I've lived a good life, I've been a good neighbor, if we could say that, there would be a sense of peace, maybe a sense of accomplishment, a sense of rest, of, okay, all right, I, it's all good. I'm good. We have a desire to live a good life, to be good, to do good, but it's not easy. That's not an easy thing, partially because we, don't necessarily even know what it means to be good. What does that mean? How do you define what it means to be good? Sometimes it's difficult because we do know what it means, but we lack the motivation, we lack the energy. It's hard to actually step into what is good. You may know the good, but that doesn't mean that we necessarily have the energy or the discipline or sometimes the courage to live and to do what is good. But as we explore this book together, the book of Titus, Titus is going to help us see this book of Titus. It's written by Paul to a person named Titus. God is going to help us see that God doesn't just want us to believe things. Coming to church, if you're a Christian, there's a lot of things that we want to believe, and that is good and that's important, but God doesn't only want us to believe things. Things. He wants us to live things. He wants to give us a good life, to live good. Really, the theme of the book of Titus, it uses the word good often, and it really, the theme of the whole book, is connecting what we believe to how we live and showing that there is an inextricable, inextricable link to what we believe and to how we live the good that God has for us. So, however you see your life right now, however you see some of those categories that maybe were put up on there, however you see it, maybe you see your life as filled with suffering and struggle. Maybe you see your life as there's sin in your life. Maybe you just see the gaps of where you are and what good would look like. Maybe you see the gaps. Maybe they're small. Maybe they're big, of being able to say authentically, it's good. Wherever you see yourself, God, through this book, wants to show us what the good life is, what it means to live good and to change our life, to experience his goodness, to work in our life, to live the good that he has for us. So the question for today is, how do we do this? How do we live good? And I'm going to give you the answer, and then we're going to explore it together. The the simple answer to how we live good is that God's work in our life, or the good that he wants to do through us, God's work comes through God's word. There is good in your life that God wants to do. There's good in your life that he wants to work through you however whatever maybe sparked as you looked at some of those good things good neighbor good marriage good family there is good that wants that God wants to do and God's good his work comes through his word so we're going to explore that together and let me just give you real quick context of this book it's a short little book that is in the New Testament. Really, called a book isn't really accurate. It's just a letter that Paul, the Apostle Paul, writes to another pastor named Titus. And they had been doing ministry in Crete, which is an island in Greece. And he writes to him because he has left him there. They were doing ministry. Paul leaves. They'd, Paul, his practice was to go and to preach and then churches would get formed and he leaves Titus there to start the church. Probably mid-60s, 63 AD, somewhere around there. He leaves him there, and then he writes him a letter. Very simple background, very simple context. Here's what it says. I'll read the whole thing, not the whole book, but the whole, uh, the whole first section that we're going to look at, and then we'll explore what it means to live the good life together. Here's what it says. Paul, just kind of introing. We don't really intro things that way anymore. When I write an email, I don't say Caleb and then kind of go into my message. But maybe we should bring that back. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness in the hope of eternal life that God, who cannot lie, promised before time began. In his own time, he has revealed his word in the preaching with which I was entrusted by the command of God, our Savior. To Titus, my true son in our common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus, our Savior. The reason I left you in Crete was to set right what was left undone, and as I directed you to appoint elders in every town. An elder must be blameless, the husband of one wife, with faithful children who are not accused of wildness or rebellion. As an overseer of God's household, he must be blameless, not arrogant, not hot tempered, not an excessive drinker, not a bully. Not greedy for money, but hospitable, loving what is good, sensible, righteous, holy, self-controlled, holding to the faithful message as taught so that he will be able both to encourage with sound teaching and to refute those who contradict it. For there are many rebellious people full of empty talk and deception, especially those from the circumcision party. It is necessary to silence them. They are ruining entire households by teaching what they shouldn't in order to get money dishonestly. One of their very own prophets said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. For this reason, rebuke them sharply so that they may be sound in the faith and may not pay attention to Jewish myths and the commands of people who reject the truth. To the pure, everything is pure. But to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. In fact, both their mind and conscience are defiled. They claim to know God but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, and unfit for any good work. So we are going to start with this. Why do we need God's word to live good? I said, here's kind of the the statement that God's work comes through God's word. If we want to live good, the way, the answer is that God's work comes through God's word. But we're going to start with this. Why is it that we need God's word to live good? Why not just be simple and say, just be good, be a good neighbor? I saw something this morning that was a comment on social media about, it doesn't even matter, but just someone said, just be a good neighbor. That's kind of the answer to it. Just be good. So why do we need God's word to live good? Is it that complicated? Isn't it just simple? We're going to go through Titus and, and, kind of work backwards today in what he presents? Why do we need God's word to live good? Here's the first reason. And it's, maybe you've kind of picked up on this already. There are different ways to define what is good. There's different ways to define what is good. If I said, hey, you want to go get some good food? And you said, yeah, that might look very different between what you and I think. I might be thinking of Indian food you might be thinking of a McDonald's cheeseburger. Those are very different. If I said, I'm gonna bring you some good food tonight and it, we had a different conception, that could lead to very different results. I remember when, um, I, I, I'm, I love movies, all sorts of movies, and I remember when I was just kind of getting to know my wife and I was like, hey, I wanna take you, me and a friend are gonna go see this good movie, we'd love to have you come. The movie was Apocalypto. I don't know if you've ever seen that, but it's, A movie that Mel Gibson made that's kind of about uh, Aztecs and human sacrifice and all sorts of crazy stuff happening, heads getting chopped off, all sorts of great stuff. And I was like, this is a good movie. And in fact, I even think it was a romantic movie because it's about this husband that's trying to rescue his wife from getting sacrificed. And it's like, this is a good love story movie. We had very different definitions. I think her eyes were closed most of the movie. She still married me. So I think it was the movie. It was a romance movie. That's why. That's a good movie. If we define good different, that will lead to different things. In fact, if you even just type in the word uh, or the phrase, the good life, thought this was interesting, and Webster's Dictionary is kind of the first thing that comes up. And look how even these are different in the dictionary, our source of truth. Look what it says. That was a joke, but the definition of the good life. It says the kind of life that people with a lot of money are able to have. That's the first definition. She grew up poor, but now she's living the good life. Okay, But now look at the second definition and how it's basically the opposite. A happy and enjoyable life. She gave up a good job in the city to move to the country in search of the good life. One is defining the good life as it's what people with a lot of money have. They're able to have the good life. They were poor, but now they've come up here. The other one is mainly saying they're up here and now they've gone down here. The good life. We need God's words to define the good life because there's very different ways to define what good even means. If you go to uh, this website, if you just type in be a good human, this is one of the first things that come up. Here's what their mission and values are. Here at Be a Good Human Co., we think teaching kids to be a good human is an important part of our future. By focusing on this simple mantra, we are encouraging a future generation of feminists, activists, and environmentalists so even the word that they say, it's a simple mantra, be a good human, right? Very simple. And now they define that as a generation of feminists, activists, environmentalists, but it's simple. However, if you type in, this was be a good human, here's be a good person. This is actually a, a place in Denver, just close by, and it says, this is the most basic concept. Again, this is very simple, this brand was developed based on a passion for positivity and a brighter future that we foresee within our society. There's 7.8 billion people on this earth. Out of that many people, how many do you know? Now, reflecting back on yourself, what's going to separate you from the rest of the crowd? Be a good person, kind of a cool shirt. Now ask yourself, are you doing everything you can to be who you want to be? That's a very diff- different definition. This is more kind of a self-esteem definition. Be all that you can be. How are you going to stand out from the crowd? Be a good person. The other definition, even though both of them say it's very simple, is more kind of, it's environmental, not fundamentalist, the opposite of fundamentalist, feminist. It's kind of more that genre. Both saying it's simple. Just be good. Be a good human. Be a good person. But we need God's word to define what it means to live good because there's different definitions. You can't just use the word good and expect that we will arrive at the same thing. What does it mean to be a good neighbor? That depends on what you think good is. What does it mean to be a good spouse or good parent? Or what does it mean to be a good worker? What is it? Those are, it's gonna be very different depending on how you define what good is. Now, in Crete, the city that they're in, Paul says this, there are many rebellious people full of empty talk and deception, meaning they are talking about things, they are teaching things, they are communicating things, and one of their very own, so this is uh, attributed to Epimenides, which is a Greek uh, philosopher, poet, said that Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons, this testimony is true. Paul is saying this is what the culture is in Crete. This is what they value. These are how they define what is good. They were proud of this. He's saying this is what the culture is like. And this is what these teachers are teaching. It is the whole culture. They define good as dishonesty, gluttony, being an evil beast. In fact, this is from... uh, William Mount's commentary says it certainly agrees with what is known of the reputation of the Cretan culture, which was renowned for its lack of ethics. Hansen points out that the verb, there you go, Christus, not crete, cre- 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 I can't remember, means to lie, that the Cretans had a reputation for stealing and that during the first century BC, Crete became famous for its housing of robbers and pirates. Cicero, another Greek philosopher, states that the Cretans consider piracy and brigandage honorable. Quinn cites Polybius as saying that it was almost impossible to find personal conduct more treacherous or public policy more unjust than in Crete. So the whole culture valued this. This is what it was like. So when Paul makes that statement, that doesn't mean every single person on Crete was like that. Obviously, Titus is on Crete. It's just kind of saying, like, Americans, we value life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness, or we value individualism. That doesn't mean you can't find someone that has different values, but he's saying, as a culture, this is actually what they valued as good. This is actually what they thought was what it meant to live good and what the good life was. We need God's word to live good because there are different definitions of good. The values around us will always have different definitions, competing definitions of what is good. And it's easy to soak up the values that are around us. Whatever the values around us are that define good. If you lived in Crete it would be hard to say, that doesn't define me. That's not how I am. It would be hard. So Paul speaks into this. You may feel this. You may look at the culture around you. You may look at the fam- I mean, your family or your workplace or if you're in school, the school around you. You may look at these different contexts that we're in, our city or our laws, or- and you may see there's different definitions of what good is. There's different values of this is good. You may feel it, experience it. The world oftentimes around us, the values around us are going to treat sex and money and success and power and happiness and how you handle suffering. And they're gonna treat all of that differently of what good is in all of those things. It will be treated differently, which makes it hard. You can't just say, be a good neighbor, live a good life. It's not, here's another important thing to think about. It isn't just as a Christian that you have to figure out good versus evil or good versus bad. We have to discern good versus good. Is, is what's defined as good actually good? In the Cretan culture that Paul is speaking into, he says, we need God's word to help us live good, because there are people teaching, communicating things, presenting things, there's a message that they have, and yet the culture is defined differently. It's not good. And so if God's ways are good, if God is good, and his ways are good, and we want to live good, then we need his word to teach us instead of what Paul says, the empty talk of the culture around. That's the first reason that we need God's word to live good. The second reason is that religion often misdefines what is good. Religion often misdefines what is good. Paul says to rebuke these people, especially those from the circumcision party which doesn't sound like a party I want to be invited to, but he said, that's, he means like the group, right? Circumcision group. Rebuke them sharply so they may be sound in the faith, may not pay attention to Jewish myths and the commands of people who reject the truth. The circumcision party, the Jewish myths, and the commands of people, this is all a lot of what Paul talked about in various letters, where there's religious people teaching that you have to be circumcised, to be in God's family, which in the Old Testament was true and the New Testament is not true. You are now, people are connected by, to Jesus by faith, not an outward sign. Jewish myths or the commands of people, meaning not the commands of God, but people making up their own rules, their own regulations, the own, their things that they say, okay, you're a Christian because of Jesus, great, but also you need to do these things. We have these rules. The Pharisees are famous for this, but some of this carried on within the Christian tradition as it got going. People that were steeped in Jewish myths and didn't, and didn't want people, they essentially wanted people to still become Jews in order to become Christians. And Paul talked about this a lot, that it's not your ethnic identity, but it is salvation in Christ. And so even religion often leads and misdefines what the good is. And even though you might look at the description of Crete and see it's lazy gluttons, evil beasts, liars, and then think about religion and extra rules and extra things you have to do and go, well, how did those Those seem kind of contradictory? But actually not. They actually thrive together. Because if we are adding things, adding rules that is not from God, if we're adding things that say you need to do these certain things in order to be saved, in order to be in God's family, you need to follow these rules in addition to the rules, when that happens, here's what's easy to do. Okay, check these boxes. I'll make sure I don't do these things. But we've got these things over here that we do. So we might say, You know, an old classic phrase, don't uh, drink, smoke, chew, or go with girls that do. You probably have never heard that unless you're 60 or up, but that's that's an old phrase, right? Don't drink, smoke, chew, or go with girls who do, okay? So that's like, here's some kind of good legalistic principles to follow. You can say, I'm going to not do any of these things, but in my heart, I complain about things all around me all the time. I don't forgive people. In my heart, there's lust. Jesus confronted this all the time where he said things like, you don't do these things, but there's a bunch of things happening inside of you. You're not murdering anybody, so you check the box. You're not a drunkard, so you check the box. You're not committing adultery, so you check the box. But there's all sorts of things happening in our heart. There's lust, there's anger, there's selfishness, there's judgmentalism, Unkindness. There's all sorts of things happening in our heart. And so it misdefines what it means to be good because we can create certain rules over here that if we are able to check, and oftentimes we create the rules ourselves that are easy for us to follow, but then there's all these other things that actually are left undone. And so we're able to say, I am living the good life, I am living good, I'm a good person. Because we don't do certain things that maybe, based on our experience or our background or our disposition are actually easy for us to do. But all the other things and our heart is not good. And so it's actually easy to be very bad in the way that God's word would define it and think we are being very good. The Pharisees were Jesus' number one enemy and they were very good but it's because there was all stuff in their heart that they, Jesus says, you wash the outside of the cup, but the inside is still messed up. That's my uh, paraphrase. Which is why Paul says, to the pure, everything is pure, but to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. In fact, both their mind and conscience are defiled. If you are pure, which means that you are someone who has a pure devotion to Jesus, that he has your heart when it's using pure. It's talking about our heart belongs to him. If you are pure, then all the, then purity is going to flow out of you. When your heart is good, it's going to flow out of that. But if you are impure, then all the different things you do, even if they're good, are actually going to be defiled. So we need God's word to live good, Because there's different ways to define it. And actually, oftentimes, this is why Paul talks about this often, the New Testament does often, oftentimes in the church, it makes it harder when you are trying to, in some ways, be a good person and follow religious teaching, and you think you are, but your heart is actually ending up far from God. It's actually impure. Your heart actually doesn't belong to him, even if certain activities do. And all of this maybe seems kind of bad. Okay, there's values around us, or maybe I can check too many boxes and not actually give my heart to God. Maybe it seems kind of bad, but Paul says it's actually worse than that. He says it's necessary to silence the people that are teaching this because, and that might sound kind of mafia-ish, you know, you need to silence them. They're ruining entire households by teaching what they shouldn't. He says the effect of this is it actually ruins entire households. It ruins the good that God wants to do in your marriage and in your life and in your family and in yourself. It ruins things. It's not just kind of like a, all right, yeah, that's interesting thought. Paul says th- these people need to be shut up because it's ruining households. It will ruin your life to have a different definition of good. It will ruin the good that God wants for you. It will ruin it. If we have a different definition of good or our definition is more of a religious definition versus our hearts belonging to him, it will ruin what God wants for you. That's serious. So we need God's word because he doesn't want you sucked in to false definitions. He doesn't want you sucked in to the ruin that could happen. He wants to build you up into the good that he has for you. That's what God wants. So secondly how do we then receive God's word? If we need God's word, because there's different definitions and religious misdefinition, how do we receive God's word? And the key that he gives to us here is it comes through the church. That's the key that he gives to us. He says, I left you in Crete to set right what was left undone, which is to appoint elders in every town. And then he calls these elders or overseers that they are people as an overseer of God's household. So what he is telling him to do, the instruction that he's giving him to do in the face of this culture and the misdefinitions and all the different good that could come at us that actually leads us to ruin, the solution to that is I'm I'm leaving you there to set up the local church. The reason I say local versus, I don't know, maybe you've heard this distinction. There's the universal church and the local church. The universal church is God's church throughout time all over the world. It's great sometimes if you're able to travel to another country and you see, I've sang in Russian and I've sang in Spanish and I've sang, you know, in different languages uh, with people, brothers and sisters from all over. I'm like, man, it's awesome to be a part of God's family all over the world. Yes, that's the universal church. But the local church is exactly what Paul's talking about here when he says to start these churches and to appoint elders in every town. So it's not just, it doesn't matter as long as there's Christians and they're all worshiping together in other places and... This person goes there, and that person goes there. He says, no, in every town, in every city, I want these households set up. That's what Paul says we need in the middle of a culture and in the middle of misdefinition of what good is. If we want to receive God's word, Paul says, "Here's, here's what it comes from. Here's what I left Titus to do in Crete. It is the church, Now, the truth is, that's easy to ignore. I think it's a lot easier to ignore today than it was a couple thousand years ago. I remember I grew up in the church. I grew up in a Christian family. Everything I did was church, church activities, church choir, church camp, church this, church, whatever you could put after church, that's what I did. Church underwear, church pajamas, all of it, okay? All of the church stuff that you could do, I checked the boxes, and eventually my parents got divorced and we left the church that we were in. And then it's like, I don't know if I need the church. I read my Bible. I listen to Christian music. I pray. I I I love Jesus. I love God. I don't know if I need the church. I don't know if I need a pastor. I think I'm good. Now, this was like when the internet was starting. So now it's a lot easier. You can actually watch a service online. No offense if you're watching online and you're like, I don't need the church. I'm watching true life. Uh, you do. Okay. So if you, it's easy. You can watch online. You can, I went to a Christian concert last Sunday, Maverick City. If you're a fan of them, they're pretty cool. Um, pretty cool people. But I'm going to criticize just a second. They said, all right, let's take them to church and then Singing, okay? So even that phrase, it kind of means like, let's create a cool worship moment, but that's not church. So you can listen to great sermons online. You can, you can listen to, to Grammy winning music, amazing stuff. You can buy Bible studies on Amazon and have them to your door in an hour. You can read great books. I mean, there's so many resources available to us which makes it really easy to say, ah, I don't know if I need the church or aren't we all a part of the church or this is my church, referring to whatever it is that you do that you enjoy. Paul says the way, what he left Titus to do was in every town to set up households with overseers, local churches, says if you want to be able to have the good that God wants to do in your life, if you want to be able to live the good that God wants for you, you actually need the church. It's the church that is God's household. It's the local church that is God's household. And he knows how vital it is to giving us the good that he desires for us to experience. And in part, that's because in the church, God gives pastors. That's what I mentioned when it says he gives the overseers, or it says elders. heres I'm not going to spend too much time on all each individual line of this, because in a lot of ways it's kind of basic, but he says in each church there should be an elder that must be blameless, which doesn't mean sinless, I hope. It doesn't mean sinless, but it means that there's not these glaring disqualifications. It means you don't look at their life and go, ugh, that person? The husband of one wife, which literally means a one-woman man. So it's not even just referring to, uh, you got five, you got to kind of knock it down a few. It's saying that you are a one-woman man, that your attention, devotion, affection is for one woman. Faithful children who are not accused of wildness or rebellion. An overseer of God's household, he must be blameless, not arrogant, not hot-tempered, Not an excessive drinker, not a bully, or literally that means not violent. In older translations it said not a striker, not greedy for money. So therefore, generous, hospitable, loving what is good. That means there's an actual passion and a desire to see what is good happen. Sensible, not just kind of making erratic decisions. Righteous, holy, their life with God self control that there's discipline that's in their life. And all of that leads to kind of the final piece, which is holding to the faithful message as taught so that he will be able both to encourage with sound teaching and to refute those who contradict it. So that they are able to do two different things, that they're able to encourage and build up with the message. Again, we're talking about we need God's word to live good. And we need it because there's all sorts of false messages and the way that we receive it is in the church with those people who are dedicated and themselves hold to, themselves model, and themselves teach. This is the message that God has given so that it encourages or builds us up and so that it silences and rebukes and confronts the false messages that are there. It's to do two things. Older pastors in previous centuries talked about needing two, the pastor needs two different voices, the voice that is for the sheep and the voice that is for the wolf, or the voice that says, no, this is wrong and refutes, and the voice that builds up into what God has called us to, into what God has said. So the way that we receive God's word, the way we receive his message is through the church, the local church. And that is partially because God has given pastors to the local church to help bring his message or his word to us. Now, I know it's kind of weird for me to talk about this because I'm the one talking about this and it's about the pastor, but it's God's word. And I'm wanting you to see not just here's what I do or here's what my job description is, but here's what God's heart is or why he has designed things this way. Listen, it's hard. I, I remember feeling this way. It's hard to want a person to bring a message to you or to want to belong to a church. That is hard, especially for Americans in 2022 with the internet. That's hard. We value privacy, not Paul calls. So here's one of my names. Don't call me this, but here's one of my names. Overseer. That, no one likes that name. Like, what do you do? I see over everything. Oh, so the NSA, spiritually. That's, like, that's not, we don't want that, right? We value privacy. We value autonomy. We value freedom. We value being able to kind of do our own thing and pick our own path and choose our own thing. That's what we value, right? And so it's hard to actually read this and go, yeah, I want an overseer. I want to belong to a household. That's hard for us to desire. That's why we talk about our personal relationship with Jesus. Oftentimes, it's even just because we feel self-reliant. We don't feel like we need something outside of us. We can figure it out ourselves. We're great at googling and reading, and we can figure it out ourselves. We can have a great relationship with God by ourself. But Paul says, in order to receive God's word, we need. We need the objective and the committed voice outside of ourselves to build us up and to protect us from the false messages around us that might influence us. I saw this little graphic and thought it was just simple but helpful that there is truth and then there's the trends. Trends go. Left, they go right, they go up, they go down. And part of what Paul is even saying here is there's our culture and there is religious misdefinition around us. And in order to be able to actually be built up and experience the good that God has for you, you need those people that hold to the faithful message and that are committed to bringing that into your life and protecting from whatever trends come and go. It's really interesting when you study history because you see that sometimes people really value this over here and then they really value this over here and it changes and it goes and it comes up and down. We need to be able to have a faithful message that we experience and that we are encouraged with and that we are protected. If you want to fully experience everything that God wants to do in your life, you need to receive his word. And the way that you receive his word in large part isn't just through reading your Bible, not just through community group, not just through a friend that you talk to that's a really good friend, that not just through a Bible app that has a good devotional or program, not just through listening to sermons, which usually those pastors even say, don't listen to me, be a part of a church. Most of the most famous preachers that maybe in here you would be inclined to listen to all say, don't listen to me, Be a part of the church. Don't just listen to me. It's not just through those things, but it's through, Paul says, God gives us, the local church and the pastors bringing that message to us that we need. You'll never, listen, this is maybe hard to receive, but you will, you'll never get to the good that God desires for you. You will never get to the good he desires for you in your marriage or in your own sense of purpose or in your family or just with you and him. You'll never get there of where you could get by yourself. Never. That's not how God has designed us. It will never happen. Even Michael, and I'm speaking out of my zone here when I start talking about sports, but even Michael Jordan needed Phil Jackson. Even the best of all time needed someone that was on the outside Encouraging them, helping them stay on the faithful message of basketball or whatever, you know? They needed a coach. You never find a, one of the great athletes that says, I did this all myself. You always need someone on the outside that is helping you to what you are designed to experience, to the good. And that is exactly how God has designed it for us. Much of the good that God wants to do in your life will stay stagnant or will stay at the place where if you're here and church and receiving from pastors, overseers, elders is here, much of the good is going to have a wall that you won't get to. You'll stay stuck. Might be kind of good, might be pretty good, but it won't be what God intends it to be. It'll never be all that it could be. So let me ask you this. What does that mean for you? What does it mean for how you prioritize church? What does it mean for how you think about what it means to even receive God's word right now and on Sundays? There's a way to come to church that's kind of just, yeah, I just kind of sit in the chair and listen in the end, okay, good, did it. And there's a way that says, I really need God's faithful message. I need that to be protected and to be built. I need it. Those are different heart postures. So what does that mean for you? Are you using the means that God has designed to help you live the good that he has for you? God's heart is seen in this. God's heart is seen in that this is what he desires to give to you. Think about all, like when you look at all the kind of instructions that are here and qualifications that are here, and that is showing Really, it's showing Jesus as the true and perfect pastor and saying, that's what God's heart is for you to experience. That's what he desires for you. He wants to protect you. He wants to help you. He wants to lead you. That's what God wants. And so he designs a household to be able to experience that. Last thing is, what does God's word do? We need God's word because there's different definitions of good and there's misdefinitions even within religion. The way that we receive it is through the local church and through pastors and leaders that God has given to us. And what does it do? What does God's word do? Well, what what is God's word? Let's just start with that, that Paul's talking about, this faithful message and all of this. And back to the intro, he says that he is a servant of God for the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness and the hope of eternal life that god promised. And then he comes down here at the end before he starts getting into the message and says grace and this isn't just a greeting, grace and peace from god the father and christ jesus our savior. Really all of that is what paul is talking about when he is saying you need elders that hold to the faithful message, you need things that are different and silence the contradictory message. So this is what god's word is. It's this truth that is about the life that Jesus came to give to us, the grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. What God's word is, is that he promises us life. The truth, the knowledge of the truth that Paul is committed to preaching and setting up elders to preach and keep is that Jesus brings life, that grace and peace are available to us that he is a savior, that you can't save yourself, but that he saves you, that you can't earn your way, but that he graciously loves us, that you can have peace with God, you can be reconciled to God and be good with him, not because of anything we've done, but because of his salvation. He gives eternal life, which is a quality of life, meaning it's available to us right now to experience knowing him, enjoying him. And it's a quantity of life, meaning that can go on starting now and go on forever. It is this that is God's word, this truth, this life that God promised to give to us that shows us what God's heart is and then what it does when you grasp that, Paul says it leads to godliness, the knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness, that as you know the truth, the message of who he is and what he's done. As you know that, it actually leads to your life being godly. Now, here's what godly means. Godly means that your life is oriented to God, that you love him, you know him, you enjoy him, your heart is towards him, not just checking boxes, but that your heart truly is saying, I belong to you, I'm defined by you, I want you. It's that you're totally oriented in your life to God. That is what godliness is that the truth leads to. And when that happens, that leads to the good life or living good. Because as you are oriented to God, you say, I want to obey you. As you're oriented to God, you say, I trust you. And so what you say about sex, money, power, alcohol, whatever else, I, I trust you and I, I don't need other things to give me satisfaction or peace or refuge or control. I, I trust you. Your ways are good. And so it becomes this heart thing that isn't just a do thing, but is I want you because you are good. Truth of Jesus' salvation and what he's done for us leads to godliness, an orientation to him, which leads to us living good because there's a trust for him, a confidence in him. His ways are good. His will is good. We want him. And so, if you want to live the good that God has for you, what God's word does, what God's truth does, is lead us to godliness, which leads us to living the good that he has. It counters the false definitions of this is good. It counters the religious misdefinitions of good is just an external thing. And instead, it draws our hearts to him. And then in all of the different things, a good marriage, good family, good, uh, just being a good neighbor, they're all oriented and surrounded by him and it leads to our action. God's word creates his work in our life. There is much that God wants to do in your life. There's all sorts of good that could flow from your life that he wants to do. He wants it to be true that you could say, I have a good marriage, I'm a good friend, I'm a good husband, I'm a good wife, I'm a good neighbor. God wants that to be true in your life. He doesn't want it to be true that what what Paul said about these people, that they are unfit for any good work. He wants it to be true that you are fit. This happens as his word gets into our life and leads to his work. So, you want to see more good in your life? Are there areas that you look at? Maybe some that I kind of put on there. Are there areas that you say, I want more good. I want to live good. It can be hard, but what if you had more of this? What if it could be true? Paul says that this is the way that God leads us to this. And when we take communion, which we're gonna do in just a moment, if you didn't grab one of those cups on the way in, you can grab a little cup. When we take communion, what we're remembering is that Jesus' body was broken for us, that his blood was shed for us. We're remembering his word. The faithful message, the message that's different from all the other messages, the message that does something in our life. We're remembering this salvation, this promise of life, this grace and peace. We're remembering that when we take communion. We're remembering here's his good word that he's given to me. Here's what he's done for me. And we're saying, I want that inside of me. And so as you take communion, take time to confess where maybe you've bought into false definitions of good or religious definitions of good. Confess where maybe there's been resistance to the means, the church and pastors that God provides. And thank God for his goodness to you. Thank God for his word, his truth, the message, and that it is true despite whatever trends come and go. Thank him for the grace and peace that he gives to you. And ask him to let that lead To good in your life, and so take a moment and pray. And when you're ready, just take up the bread and the juice, and then we'll respond in singing. Father, I thank you for your goodness to us. I thank you, Jesus, that the faithful message that you want us to receive over and over again—the faithful message that you want us to be built in and protected in. The faithful message is your grace and peace. Thank you that you are Savior, that you reveal yourself not just as teacher, but as Savior. Thank you that we can bring our life to you. Every sin, every sorrow, every suffering, we can bring it to you. We can receive salvation. We can receive your presence. And that your desire is to continually give us good. Help us, Lord, to receive this and to respond in communion and worship. In your name, Jesus. Amen.